Good evening. This is Flugus Darius. Have you ever looked down an alley and you kind of shivered from what could be at the other end waiting for you? Or have you ever just turned the wheel of your car just in time to avoid that madman that was dashing at 90 miles an hour past you? Or maybe you had a situation that you look back on after a few years and realize I was in a very dangerous position and didn't even know it. These close call incidents oftentimes make us better people. Welcome to the close call thriller hour. I'm Flugasteris. And after hearing some of these stories that we are about to present to you, Perhaps it'll make you more aware of what's waiting for you around the corner, of what could happen to you if you don't walk circumspectively and watch your back. Welcome to the Close Call Thriller Podcast. Illinois Glass Factory in Alton, Illinois. Kind of desolate place it was. Huge factory. Had been there over a hundred years. And the weather was starting to get bad when we left for work that morning. By the time we got off, after working a double shift, my cousin and I decided that it would probably be best not to take the drive home because the entire city was covered in a thick sheet of ice. We weren't going anywhere for a few days. It was going to be rough. We had to walk across the street to a small hotel, well, actually, it was a motel, and we decided to stay there for a few days until the weather subsided. We called our families and told them that we wouldn't be home. They all agreed that it would be best for us to stay at the hotel. So, Saturday night, We worked a little overtime, had a little bite to eat at the plant, crossed the icy road to go back to the hotel. We went in our room. I remember the room was 
April 1, 791, sat in the back of, of a dark hall. My cousin and I were about 19 or 20 at the time. Came in, had a few laughs. I played guitar a little bit, and we went to bed. Slept a couple hours. My cousin was kind of startled by the sounds of footsteps near the door. So he decided to get up, go out and look around and see what was going on. I was so nonchalant about the idea, I just picked the guitar up and began to play it again, just picking it a little bit. And my cousin came in and shut the door. It looked like he had seen a ghost. He said, hey man, did you see the guy down at the other end of the hall? I said, I said, who? He says, real tall guy with long hair cowboy boots and a leather jacket. He had a chain on his side and he was standing down at the end of the hall just looking my way. It really scared me. I said, well, okay, so he shut the door and came back in. I put my guitar down, walked over to the door. I didn't actually see anybody. <clears throat> I said, hey, man, I think you're freaking out. I'll just go down and get a soda. And you keep an eye on me while I go. I snatched some change, went down to the opposite end of the hall, and uh, got a couple of sodas, walked back. I didn't see anybody. And it really freaked my cousin out because he said, man, you didn't see that guy standing back in the shadows? I said, no, man, I didn't see anybody. I said, but there's two of us and one of him. We certainly can take him. He shut the door. And uh, my cousin was a very religious guy. He got on his knees and really started praying and asking for God's help. And I joined him, you know. I just could not understand why he was so freaked out. So we went, laid down. I went to sleep. He obviously didn't go to sleep that night. He kept, he said he kept hearing footsteps going up and down the hall, which I couldn't attest to. Like I said, I was 19. I, I really had my mind on other things. So the next morning we got up went to work and you know we talked to a couple of friends of ours about what happened one of the guys that we knew stayed in the hall the, the room across the hall from us and he told us that when he left for work that morning that there was somebody in our room 
sitting on the side of the bed playing my guitar. We were at work. He said, there was a guy in your room playing the guitar, just kind of playing around with it. And he looked in, and he looked for us, and the guy looked at him, and he described the guy just like my cousin had. And so he said he just came to work. He figured we knew the guy. And that really freaked us out. So we worked our shift. And after we got through working, we crossed the road to come back. And as we approached the hotel, we approached it with caution. We saw blood stains on the carpet leading to our room. We walked carefully into the room. We looked around. We said, we better try to get the manager out. We don't know what's going on. So we went to try to get the manager of the hotel. He usually sat in the front of the window to take in patrons. And we looked around for him and we rang the bell. We looked behind the desk and his throat had been cut and he was bleeding. And we saw footsteps leading to our room. We really freaked out. So we immediately grabbed the phone and called the police. Nobody else was in the hotel at the time because the weather was so cold. And we wanted to get things straightened out before our friend came back from work. Because we knew that he was over, he was going to be in the room by himself. And we wanted to warn him not to go in. At that time, we heard guitar playing coming from our room. It's really weird. And then we heard somebody take the guitar and smash it. looked up and uh, looked down the hall and the sky was coming really hurriedly down the hall in our direction. And he had some type of axe in his hand. And he hurled the axe in our direction and he missed and so we began, we fell on the floor and was crawling around. This guy was way too big for us to try to handle ourselves. I realized that he's about 6'3". He's very muscular. So he walked and kicked in the door that we were in. And he began to scramble around to look for us. And we were behind the counter. He came behind the counter, and the first person he reached for, he grabbed me by the back of my shirt and raised me up. And at that time, my cousin punched him, and he acted as if he didn't even feel the punch. My cousin punched him again and grabbed him around the neck. He elbowed my cousin in the ribs and knocked him on the floor and took me and flung me through the other side of the room. And he pulled a, a blade out of his uh, 
side uh, side uh, belt. He had a a pocket knife, but it was a longer knife, and he was headed towards me. And just as he raised his his arm to stab me with it, I heard a gunshot, and I heard another one and another one, and the police shot him three or four times. He fell to the ground right on top of me. And my cousin pushed him over. He was still struggling with the police, but he was wounded pretty bad. And they got us out of there. Come to find out this guy was uh, a serial killer on the loose. And he had killed 12 people in Missouri. And he came off to Illinois to try to hide out. And I guess the bad weather caught him over there. He died before he left the hotel room. But that was something that really shocked us for a long time. I don't think we ever really got over that night at the hotel in Alton, Illinois. That was the freakiest thing that ever happened to me. And every time I drive over that way, I try not to even look in that direction. My name is Travis Washington. I'm the homicide detective for Washington Park, Illinois, a small town near East St. Louis. I was called to the crime scene of uh, a nightclub, an adult nightclub called the Precious Theater in Washington Park. It had been an eyesore for quite a while. And when we went to the crime scene the night after Halloween in 2000, Two, we were horrified at what we saw. Um, there were only two survivors that night out of about 60 people. And the gory scene was terrible. It was just terrible. I pulled the witnesses to the side. They were in shock. And this is their account of what happened. My name is James Crawford. I live in Alton, Illinois. Uh, I've always had a taste uh, for that more, uh, can I say, uh, uh, experiment, experimental side of, 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 of the sexual experience. And so I uh, like to find women that 
can suit my taste. So I met my girlfriend, Brenda. She's a black girl. In 1994, and we started dating. We started exploring some things together. How do we do uh, a lot of group sex and things like that? And uh, we seemed to enjoy it. We never had a problem with it. Uh, I know most people really don't agree with that type of swinging lifestyle, but we never had a problem with it. Uh, She started me to more or less get involved with this swinging scene, and I I was a little reluctant to open it up to her at first because she's such a beautiful woman. I just had to do whatever she asked me to do. I never had a woman like that. And she was openly and uh, uh, blatantly open with her sexual preferences. She liked girls as well as men, and, and she was willing to put on a show for me anytime I wanted it. And so I enjoyed it. Well, uh, uh, we would frequent the precious hotel. Uh, precious nightclub every every now and then we'd go over there um, and meet people and uh, there would be guys that was interested in because she was a buxom woman she's a very beautiful woman and although I did not really want her to do some of the things that she did uh, she was insisting on me doing it I didn't want to lose her. She's a beautiful girl. And I've never had a woman like that. Like I said before, she she didn't ask for much. And, you know, she took care of herself. She had a good job. She worked uh, for a telephone company. And I made good money. She made good money. We had a good life together. We took nice trips together. But wherever we went, uh, we we would always explore this dark side of uh, well, the sexual experience. And uh, we went a couple of times to Jamaica and, and the grill and, and, and stayed in nudist colonies and things like that, you know. And this was what she liked. And, you know, obviously it was what I liked because I... I joined her and supported her. We were happy, you know. She never did anything uh, behind my back that I know of. So we were happy with it. Then things began to get a little strange. One time she invited a couple of guys over to the house. And I didn't even know she had done it. And when I get off work, they were sitting up in the house. And uh, you know, I pull her over to the side, the back room. I asked her what's going on. She's standing up there 
uh, stalk deck it in front of them, you know, and they're <clears throat> all ready for some type of action. And, I, you know, she normally she, she would tell me when she's going to do these things. And she, she didn't really inform me and let me know what was going on. I kind of walked in on it at the beginning of it. And she took the guy through the back room. I'm, I'm trying to talk to her. She put me out of the room. And uh, I didn't know what was going on in there. And, you know, I was a little bit concerned. And uh, one of the guys started getting kind of rough with her, you know. And I could hear what was going on. And uh, I forced myself in all in the room, you know, and uh, the guys didn't really give me a problem, you know, but I, I broke it up and I told them to leave, so they left, they didn't give us a problem, but it was kind of a sticky situation, you know, and at that point, that was when things began to kind of go in the wrong direction for us. I just felt like, you know, she was getting a little too caught up in this thing and maybe we ought to uh, <coughs> either uh, figure out how to do some, do something else or get some help or whatever we needed to do because it was beginning to get a little scary. So she was determined to keep doing what she like she said she couldn't enjoy herself no other kind of way and you know I was, like I said I was in love with her and I got used to it and I was getting some pleasure out of it myself and then one day um, I was uh, praying about things and you know God showed me that something really terrible is going to happen if we kept doing this. And so I started asking her to kind of think about cutting back on this, these sexual escapades that we were involving ourselves in. And she didn't want to hear it. Of course, she's, she said, you know, you just... You're just getting to where you're just getting on my nerves with this. You know, we, we, we went into this, been doing it for years, and now you won't take away my fun, you know. And she'd make me feel bad about that because, you know, I, I, she she was right to a certain extent. And so we we uh, back forth over it. And I said, well... We're just got a big Halloween party coming up. And uh, over at the Precious Nightclub. I said, we're going to go over here, let you have fun, have a good time. And after this Halloween party, we're going to sit down, have a discussion, and we're going to make a decision on something that's going to satisfy both of us because I can't keep living like this. I just tell you, I just can't keep doing it. I wasn't getting much pleasure out of it. And I was ready to go to more serious uh, <clears throat> levels of the relationship and just acting like a couple of teenagers in heat. 
um, she thought about it and she agreed, you know. She usually is a pretty diplomatic woman. I don't know, she agreed because she just wanted to shut me up or she agreed because she really had given it some thought herself. Anyway, she dressed up like Playboy Money and I dressed up like Hugh Hefner and we went to the party. There's all kinds of people there. It's about 60 people when we got there. It was packed and you know, we paid a pretty plenty to get in there to get all the drinks you want, all the food you want free. We had a live band. We had all these rooms, all these different sexual activities going on, you know. And it, it was a, it was a very wild party. And so <clears throat> now the house rules let you know you can't put your hands on anybody that doesn't want to be touched. And you can't force anybody into anything. And, you know, most people that frequent this place know that. Well, I got up to get me and Brenda a couple of drinks and some food. She stayed in the room full of guys. I come back, they had her all tied up about five or six guys were on her and she was just enjoying herself with them. I put the food down and you know it, it, it was just I, you know I kind of dissociated myself from the situation because I really didn't have a stomach for it that night I'll say but they were doing whatever they wanted to do. She was doing whatever she wanted to do with them. So I just kind of stood back and just let them do what they were doing. <clears throat> and uh, around that time, I started hearing a loud noise down the hall. And it sounded like firecrackers going off. I thought somebody was just doing some wild stuff, you know, because it was really loud, but we never heard anything like that. So most of the people in that room were so engrossed in what they were doing, they didn't even pay attention to it. And since I really wasn't involved in anything, I was just kind of watching. I decided to go out of the room, go down and check out what was going on. I heard three more loud shots that went into the back room and there was a guy there was dressed like a Ghostbusters I had his trench coat on or whatever he had shot everybody in that room he didn't see me look in there I backed out of the room and ran down to start trying to warn people about that time he had another guy that was coming in from the opposite end of the place. By then, after those shots were fired, everybody was in disarray and you know, bullets were flying everywhere. And people were hollering and screaming. I grabbed Brenda and I ran. I took her. She didn't have anything on. I took her 
down the aisle of this theater and we um, went behind her. They had a big curtain there. A bunch of huge uh, suitcases and stage stuff was within the back. And <clears throat> they had a, a kind of a uh, a basement that uh, steps that led down to a lower quarter that you couldn't see in the dark. So I took her down there and we're sitting down there. Nobody saw us go back there and we're behind the curtain and behind a, these huge suitcases or whatever they were. And we stooped down. She's crying her heart and I told her just be quiet, calm down. We're hearing all these shots go off and people just hollering and screaming. It sounded like we were in the pits of hell. And it was the most devastating experience I ever had. It scared me out of my wits. The shooting went on for at least 10 or 15 minutes until things just got quiet. It was so quiet that I, I couldn't, I, I, you could have heard a pin drop in the place. And oh my God, when we walked out, after about an hour, we it was quiet. We didn't move for an hour. And I could see that the sun was coming up because this is a 24-hour um, venue. I could see light coming into the place. And I walked out. I told her to wait. I walked out. Didn't hear anybody moving around. Oh, my God. It was like Vietnam bodies were everywhere. I walked out of that portion of the theater. I just... Bodies all over the place. I just couldn't believe it. It was the worst thing that I've ever seen in my life. And I said to myself, Lord, you warned me about this, but I didn't listen. And I wish that I had, I, I wish that I hadn't just been out seeking these pleasures everybody in the place was gone everybody in the place was was dead I, I, it's the most terrible thing I ever saw in my life testimony that James gave us uh, to this day we have not been able to find the people that raided the Precious Nightclub that night we don't know if they were drug addicts 
We didn't get a description. Nobody survived. And James and Brenda were in the dark when this took place, so they couldn't really see. The nightclub closed after that permanently. And James and Brenda eventually got married and they changed their lifestyle. So that is the story of the Precious Nightclub. My name is Reginald Berlowski. My family and I moved to the northern suburbs of Schomburg on Askew Street in 1996. We loved the place. It's four bedrooms, two-car garage. Uh, We had two and a half master baths, finished basement, huge backyard on at least three quarters of an acre of land. Just what we wanted. The neighborhoods were nice and schools were excellent. And it was a great payoff for several years of saving money and hard work on the part of me and Margaret, my wife, for us to finally relax into a nice suburban home outside the blustering city of Chicago. We stayed there. She had a couple more kids after we had our firstborn, Timothy Jr. We had two girls beautiful girls, Lorraine and Sharice. And we just enjoyed our life. After we had been in the house for about four or five years, I guess it was like five years, we started getting visits from Margaret's mother. She began to complain about her relationship with her husband, Dwight. And she said her and Dwight were getting along well. And we knew that, you know, they were getting up in age. And it seemed as if the older they got, the worse they got along. They were rapidly approaching their 50th anniversary. And it's supposed to be a time of, you know, reacquainting yourselves with each other and loving each other. But with them, the darts were flying and the insults were going back and forth. And they were really, really inconsistent irk sessions with each other. And it just seemed to be getting worse. She was coming down, visiting us more often to help the kids and 
she would clean up and do things around the house. She's a great, great mom, a great grandma. We call her Mima. And uh, kids loved her. Me and her got along okay. And I really sympathized with her because I knew she had dedicated her life to Dwight. And Dwight had been an aeronautical engineer. He had made a lot of money, but he never spent much on her. And that was kind of discouraging. So I sympathized with her. And Margaret did as well. She really had a great relationship with her mom. Her mom was always supportive. After she visited us off and on frequently for about six or seven months, we went to a wedding feast for uh, one of the kids in the family, uh, one of our nephews. And her Dwight was there, and she looked great. And she was very happy. We went to the wedding feast, had a good time. She drove back to Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, and we went back to Chicago. Two days later, she had a couple of pretty rough strokes and it shocked the hell out of us because we had never known her to have that type of bad health. She was a little overweight but she was she had gotten quite a few pounds off her over the past few years. So she didn't have a debilitating stroke but it slowed her down and it scared her because Dwight, in a fit of anger, told her that if she was to get any worse, she would have to be put out in the streets. He was not gonna take care of her if her health continued to deteriorate. Well, that would scare anybody. So, me and Margaret had a conversation. I decided that we might have to step in and do something about this. Meanwhile, she was getting therapy for the stroke and she became less trusting towards Dwight. So she asked her son, Jack, to find her a senior citizen apartment. And he did that. She officially separated herself from Dwight and she moved into the apartment. But after she moved to the apartment, she had another mini stroke, which left her unable to take care of herself. And Jack didn't trust her by herself. So he had her stay with some more relatives. Well, Mima stayed with them for a few years. Well, a few months, rather. And uh, she really wasn't happy there. But she 
had too much pride to ask us could she come and stay with us. So I decided to tell her myself that she should come and stay with us. And Margaret talked to her about it and asked her did she want to come and live with us in Chicago. And she was originally from Chicago, so she was really happy about that. And her and uh, Margaret had such a great relationship that they were kind of glad. So we all accepted her with open arms and we moved her in and gave her her own room and uh, put in adult daycare where she could have some activity during the day. And she really liked it because she's a very social person and she had always been active in the community over the years. She's a great personality, good Christian woman too. And so we decided that uh, she should stay with us indefinitely. So we got everything arranged and she had one issue that I really had a problem with. She kept raiding the kitchen at night and she was uh, diabetic and so she would eat cakes and and drink sodas and different things that she shouldn't have been eating or drinking and when we asked her about it she would say that well she didn't really remember doing it because these strokes had taken her short term memory away from her so that was kind of frustrating so I told Margaret, I said, you're going to have to put your foot down with her and let her know. We didn't move her in here to kill her. We moved her in here so that she could be happy and extend her life and be safe and be healthy. And we can't do it by ourselves. She had to help us. And she understood that because she was an intelligent woman. But she would still do it when we left the house or whatever. She would go and raid the refrigerator and eat some things that she shouldn't eat. Well, she had another stroke. And this kind of took away her ability to walk. So now she was kind of uh, limited to walk using a walker or stand in the bed all day. And we still took her to daycare, but she couldn't walk around as freely as she could at night because her legs weren't strong enough unless she used a walker. And it was kind of hurtful to see her kind of go down like that. But other than that, the doctor gave her a clean bill of health and she was in pretty good shape. And she could talk and still enjoy herself. She just couldn't walk very much. So the kids were growing up and years passed. And we began to notice that uh, just weird things were happening around the house that we couldn't explain. Uh, 
one night I parked the car in the garage and Margaret parked hers next to me and when I drove the car to work that particular day I saw that the car was completely cleaned out and I, I noticed that it was unusually clean it had been you know, I've been vacuumed out and everything was in order and I had a simonized shine on the car. I couldn't tell it until the sun hit it in the morning and I thought, well, maybe Margaret had went and had it detailed. And so I didn't say much about it. But she came and told me that her car was in the same condition. And she thanked me for it. And I just accepted the thanks without even making an issue out of it. I figured she, maybe she was playing some type of game. I was just hoping that she would continue to do it. And the cars stayed clean all the time. And I know I wasn't doing it. I thought she was doing it. And she thought that I was doing it. And there were other things that were happening around the house that was just difficult to explain. Nothing bad, it was just things were being fixed that I know I didn't fix. And it was just a lot of different occurrences that took place while everybody was gone during the day and, and I couldn't explain it, and I didn't try to explain it because it was nothing negative or nothing bad. And we went on living our happy lives. And me and Ma was happy, everybody was happy. And then we had some neighbors that moved in next door. And they were kind of rowdy young people. They made a lot of noise. They played their music loud. And they weren't very respectful. But, you know, I tried to be friendly with everybody. I introduced myself. And I never called a police or anything, but they did have some pretty wild parties. One day, uh, we had a visitor come and visit us, and when he went to leave, he found that somebody had been going through his car. They didn't take anything, but we made a police report, and it was kind of obvious, obvious that it may not have been the people that lived in the house next door, but it definitely was somebody that was visiting them. And so I read flags start going up. And we continued to live. You know, one day I came home from work. And when I walked through the door, I knew something was wrong because Everything was in disarray. 
And I couldn't explain it, so the first thing I did, I went back and checked the room to make sure that Mima was okay. And she was sitting in the bed, on the side of the bed, crying. And I asked her what was wrong. And she said, well, somebody climbed through your bedroom window. These two guys came in and they were trying to force information out of me about money and they were tearing things up. And I don't know what they were planning to do with me. I was so upset, I was crying and screaming. And out of nowhere, this little guy came in, this little short man came in, very muscle-bound, with a humpback, and he came, and he chased him out of the room, and I heard a struggle, and I heard things falling in the room, and I don't know what happened, but I'm scared to go in there. I already called the police. I said, well, you take it easy, and I ran in the room, and both of these guys were laying there. One had been stabbed to death, and the other guy had his neck broken. And nobody else was there. It was a shock to me. We made the police report. They were trying to trace down who the guy was that came in and saved her. We had no idea who this guy was. So, I finally took Mima on a couple of vacations and the family got away for a while and came back and six or seven months later, things were pretty much back to normal. It was a devastating thing and we were able to hide that from the kids. This particular morning, it was a beautiful May morning. I got my keys to my car, walked into the garage, through the house, and I opened the door to my car, and I could look on the reflection, and I saw someone way up in the roof of my garage. There were wooden planks up there. And I act, tried to act like I didn't know who it was. I couldn't see it, but it scared me half to death. And I looked up, and there was a guy standing on one of the planks looking down straight into my eyes. And he fit the description of what Mima said. It was the guy that came in and beat up and killed all the guys. And he looked at me and he jumped across to another rafter and went out of the window of the garage and ran. I never saw that guy again. I said to myself, 
Wow. I couldn't believe it. This guy had been living up there for the past nine years and we never knew it. He was a protective squatter. Well, that's our first episode of the Close Call Thriller Hour. I hope it made you realize that in times like this, we have to be a little bit more careful about what we do, a little bit more careful about our surroundings, a little bit more aware of where we're at at any given moment. We don't want to be found the subject of someone's sadistic fantasy. So let's just walk in awareness. And until the next time we meet, we'll have more close call thriller stories. I'm Flugus Darius. Have a good day.